Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Special Operations, Covert Ops, Espionage, The Team House, with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 132 of The Team House. I'm Jack Murphy, here with Dave Park. Our guest tonight is Malcolm Braley. He is a former Australian diplomat and infantryman. He uh, spent a long time in uh, Southeast Asia working on counter-extremism programs and elsewhere in the world. And we're excited to have this conversation. This is a little bit offbeat um, from the normal stuff where we interview spies and special ops guys. But I think, Malcolm, you, you, you exist in your careers kind of at this interesting intersection and we should probably talk to diplomats a little bit more often, actually. So um, thank you for coming on the show and um, look forward to speaking to you tonight. And Mal- Malcolm got all of his drinking out of the way before the show because he did, said he didn't want to propagate or perpetuate the... Uh, stereotypes the, about Australians. Yeah, the stereotypes <laughs> about Australians, yeah. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Oh, yeah. Uh, admission. I use your podcast. I listen. I listen to it when I'm in quarantine, and uh, I've been traveling quite a lot the last two years, even during COVID. And uh, I've spent 
two months of my life in hotel rooms and uh one of the ways i survived was uh one hiring a treadmill so i can you know keep steps up and two listening to your show it's fantastic and um yeah i mean your headline is about special operations covert operations espionage and definitely i'm not classically in that in that bucket but uh i hope that we can um talk today about a lot of uh, our experiences and sort of as you said at the intersection of that world yeah and um really really sort of show how that sort of civil military cooperation happens um but also just from the perspective of an australian uh who's progressed through the military and diplomacy and now in now in the public sector so uh, in the in the private sector so yeah i'm looking forward to it boys we're putting that endorsement on all of our promotional literature now uh <laughs> team house podcast good for quarantine you're, <laughs> you're you're actually not the first australian malcolm to tell us that you know they they listen to the show while they're in quarantine because the australians have been pretty hardcore about when you come back into the country you're like mm -hmm. two weeks in the hotel room until two weeks. and then it tests you if you're good to go and then and yeah. then you get to go uh Go see your family and everything, as it were. Yep, two weeks at a time. That that rule has since um, lapsed. I believe even the last few days, um, the Australian government has reassessed that once again, and it's free for uh, all travellers and and certainly for citizens to come and go. But yeah, it's been a it's been a, a big part of uh, the effort to travel during mm. this time. And um, we can talk about it a bit a bit later in the interview if you want. But uh, Travel has been hard. It's it's involved sacrifices, but I believe uh, that those who were able to get out, and I was privileged to be able to get out the door, um, ha had some great benefit for doing so. Yeah. So, Malcolm, tell us a little bit about your origin story. I'd like to hear a little bit about mm -hmm. how you came up and kind of the mm -hmm. um, the pathway that took you into diplomacy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you said mm -hmm. you spent mm -hmm. 12 years in the Aussie military beforehand, right? That's right. That's right. Um, another admission to make up front, your your phrase, origin story, I now use that in work interviews I do with people. I say, tell me your origin story. And uh, I think it's a good it's a good icebreaker. It allows people to sort of, you know, tell their narrative and their, their where they've come from. But look, for, for me... We invented um, that term, in... just so you know. We, you're free to use it. <laughs> Dave came up with it. We, we, in, we invented it. Nobody's ever used that. <laughs> <laughs> Trademark. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, I, I grew up in, in Sydney uh, on the east coast of Australia. Um, I was lucky to live on... Uh, Sydney's a reasonably big city. I don't know how it might compare to the US, but it's like, you know, three to five million people. Um, I lived on the sort of urban outskirts where I was able to sort of roam pretty free in the, what we call the bush. And, uh, and uh, you know, I had a pretty, pretty solid uh, opportunity as a young fella to sort of... Um, learn and grow in the in the outdoors so to speak definitely not a country lad um you know uh you know out there shooting and farming but um had an opportunity to sort of uh be in the outdoors you know for example as a young 14 15 year old you chuck on the rucksack and get on the train for a couple of hours and go up to go up to an area near sydney called the blue mountains which is just a fantastic place to go hiking as a young guy and you're away for three, four days and your parents never hear from you. I don't know what I'd think about that as a parent now, but uh, that's where I was. Um, I wanted to join the military from a very young age. Um, a lot of influence from my uh, grandfather who served in Second World War. He was actually uh, one of our, in one of our commando arrangements, one of our, one of our antecedent um, special operations units in World War II. And he'd served from 1939 all the way through to 1945. 
and um, actually a uh, little bit of a sidetrack on Australian military history in World War One and World War Two, and all the way through to Vietnam. Australia, Australia was an all-volunteer force, even for the even for the two world wars. And um, in his case, in the Second World War, uh, you got a, you got a number when you joined up, right? Same as today, but it was it was sequential when you joined up. And my, our, my surname is Bradley here, the same surname. And um, he was he his number was five oh three, and up to five hundred was reserved for officers. So he was literally the third guy to enlist in the Australian Imperial Forces in the in the Second World War. Wow. Uh, so that that had a big influence on me, and um, you know I always wanted to join the military, and I I, I suppose pretty classically uh, finished school, just turned eighteen, and I was lucky enough to be selected to go to our. Uh, military academy in Canberra. Um, we have a little bit of a different system, you guys. It's a it's a tri service academy for the first three years, and then you go off into a single service uh, war fighting college for the for the final year. Uh, so I did that. Did four years, four years, four years training, which seems like a long time, um, but I think importantly gives a young a young sort of wannabe officer time to grow up a bit. And uh, I was I was wondering if I should go back in time and tell any stories from that time, but I think I think I think they can be they can be classified these days in an old-fashioned phrase called hijinks, and uh, we'll we'll just we'll just leave it at that. But um, you know, fantastic foundation for the rest of your career, and 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 um, honestly, there's you know a number of people who who I trained with back then who are still um, you know your rock-solid mates all the way all the way through to today. Um, yeah, you're right, Jack. I then spent the next sort of decade um, as an infantry officer, pretty, pretty sort of classical, classical career up to that point. Um, the Australian Army, and this is early to mid '90s. Um, the Australian Army was not not particularly operationally experienced since the end of the Vietnam War. Uh, the particular battalion that I ended up with, and the, the the regiment that I ended up with, was the first battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment, and that that unit had actually deployed to. Somalia in the early 90s. Uh, you might recall some of the early early deployments there. So they had a very, very good grounding in um, in that sort of, uh, not a regular warfare, but that sort of uh, non-traditional warfare. And um, whilst I myself didn't deploy on that mission, I like to think that, um, you know, I, I, even at that very, very early stage in the early 90s, inherited some of that thinking and some of that mindset about non-traditional operations. Um, very quick tour de force on what I did after that. I, I actually ended up, uh, whilst the most of the Australian Army at that time was doing tours of East Timor, you might remember yeah. uh, the Timor intervention. Yeah. Very, very, uh, a lot of my colleagues and peers had, had deployed there. I, I didn't get to do that, uh, but I was sent to the Balkans actually on an attachment to the British Army for a year and um, had a fantastic time there and in a way sort of uh changed my mindset and my career and once i got back from that we, we can we can dive into that a bit later but uh, once i got back from that i was determined to learn more about uh, what was this conflict what the hell happened there why how you know, what was what was ethnic warfare what, what what was state disintegration all about and more importantly as a soldier at the time who were these other people in the battle space who 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 were these Characters called diplomats and uh, uh, peacekeepers, you know, uh, uh, even policemen and other aid workers. You know, who were these other actors in that battle space, and how did they contribute? 
and at that time, uh, uh, I resigned from the military on my own volition and went back to grad school uh, in Australia to do a what we call a, a master's degree. I suppose I'm not quite sure what your graduate pathways are over there, but I did a did a master's degree in international diplomacy, uh, international relations, and really set my sights on um, joining the federal government, what we call the the Commonwealth government, and um, took me a little while. I did a bit of a sidetrack in Singapore as a as a quasi academic, uh, but I got back in uh, initially in the Department of Defence as a political policy officer, defence policy officer, and then um, later as a as a diplomat, where I served uh, uh, all, all up uh, fourteen years in government service, just on ten years as a as a diplomat. And um, there's a whole bunch of stuff we can dig into there, fellas, in terms of postings and missions and operations all around the world, from Africa, Middle East. Afghanistan a couple of times uh, and then finishing off in Southeast Asia and and then the, the final sort of tour de force just to give you a sense of my career after almost 30 years in government I punched out and transitioned to the to the to the to the private sector um, where I did a couple of things concurrently uh, but was lucky enough to find myself mostly back in Southeast Asia running counterterrorism and counterviolent extremism operations, much the same as what I had done in government, but with a whole lot more um, freedom and responsibility uh, and more sort of grassroots approach to it. And um, to cap it off at the, at the very back end of that, the last year or so, uh, I made a, another sort of segue or transition to working for a, a company that's involved in um, global green energy creation and looking for renewable energy projects worldwide. So um, that's me in 30, 32 odd years and uh, uh, in a nutshell, and that's my sort of origin story. And you're welcome to, to dig into that and, and kick off. Yeah, I definitely want to go uh, and ask you a bit about Bosnia. But Dave, uh, could you yep. uh, give a quick plug for our sponsor? Yes. ATAC? So uh, our first sponsor for this evening uh, are our friends at ATAC Fitness. Uh, for those of you who are preparing for some sort of selection or mm -hmm. just preparing for life, trying to stay fit, um, ATAC uh, Fitness sells uh, these great packs of swimmer gear. Um, they, uh, they come with these really rigid... Uh, rubber fins, they're jetted, open heel design, really nice fins, really good for working out, um, uh, treading water, uh, making distance. Um, they come with snorkels, uh, helps you practice. One actually helps you practice your, your breath control, uh, build your lung capacity, um, gets you used to, you know, having something over your face. If you're not to, if you are preparing for selection. Um, they sell a couple different types of masks. They have these low-profile masks if you're just looking to get in shape and, and swim. If you're looking to more practice the types of things that you would do in some sort of selection, um, uh, then they also have the full-volume masks, which are just the big round, the old-fashioned style round ones that you probably had when you were a kid, if you're older, um, where you can you know do your purging exercises with them. And then they also come with uh, a nice, you know, little lines and everything so you can practice your knots underwater and whatever else. That's a really sloppy bowling. But anyway, so you can practice all that. But uh, ATAC Fitness, that's ATACfitness.com. Promo code TEAM10 for 10% off. That's TEAM10 for 10% off. Selection starts here. Awesome. So Those guys do programming as well or just the gear? Um, they have partnerships, I believe, or, or they, uh, they kind of promote uh, people who actually do 
some of the training and programs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting with the dive gear and the swim gear because I know one of the, you know, both personal reflection and also some of the guys who go through our special ops training is don't underestimate the water. No, <laughs> Get some swim training in. I, th- Get some I'm, swim training in, you know. I think that's why most most services use it in some form or another as part of their selection mm-hmm. because the water, water will challenge you, mm-hmm. you know. So, Malcolm, back to you. I was wondering if we could kind of backtrack to, um, you know, as you said, back in back in those days when you were in the Aussie military, uh, there yep. wasn't a lot of operational deployments, but you had this opportunity uh, to go to uh, Bosnia with the Brits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Uh, it was very interesting. At that stage, I was a captain, so I'd progressed through being platoon commander and regimental, regimental time. I'd been an instructor at our infantry center. Um, I'd been an adjutant of a of a of a um, what we call a reserve unit, so I thought I was reasonably um, experienced. Um, British Army, um, long, long history and almost continuous sort of sense of operations. And um, one thing we can talk about a little bit is the sort of cultural fit there with Australians. It's interesting. We we talk the same language as the British Army. Uh, our cultures and traditions look and feel the same. Um, but when you meet them up close, uh, they're fantastic people. Don't get me wrong; I love them to this day. But uh, there's there's a little bit of culture clash there when you when you rub up against the British Army. I'll give you a quick quick funny side story before we get into the the operational side of it. So myself and one other fella, uh, the, the battalion that we were linked to, they were called the Royal Green Jackets. Interesting regiment. They're now called the Rifles, part of an amalgamation of the UK Army's um, sort of light infantry units. And that had been my background too, light, light infantry. Anyway, uh, they were based in Germany. And so it was a long flight for us, for all the way from Australia, blah, blah. Um, we get picked up by the British uh, team and, and taken to this barracks, which uh, I want to go out on a limb here and say it was like some old Wehrmacht barracks or something like that that the British had taken over at the end of the Second World War and was still, still inside. And... Um, we were going to be living in the officers' mess as young officers. And um, I don't know if you guys have ever been inside a British regimental sort of officers' mess, but it's like walking into some ultra posh country club type scenario, right? There's lounges and old oil paintings and the silverware and all that. Stuff. And look, the Australian Army has that too, but it's more like walking into a shed with a few chairs and old beer cans in our, in our army, but there's as much more fancy uh anyway myself and this guy i think we might have arrived at about 3 p.m in the afternoon at this barracks and uh we dumped our gear and were led downstairs by uh a particular job title in the british army called a batman which is like you know the person who looks after all the gear of the officers and 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 works in the mess anyway so we we get in there we go down we sit on the lounge chair and uh they said oh look the rest of the the regimental officers are working till four or something or four thirty uh are you guys okay just to chill here for a minute we're like yeah yeah sure so and they go do you want anything and we're me and this other fellow were like well sure can we have a beer uh and i think this is like january so it's like cold but we're like it's warm by the fire so we thought yeah we'll have a beer so this guy starts bringing beers out to us and unlike uh, a normal mess where you actually stand at a bar and pay your money. This just sort of barman mysteriously walks away and comes back with your drinks on a tray. So we're sitting there having a few beers in the British Army mess. Sure enough, the other officers do finish work at four and they all come in and they're a bit standoff. They're like, oh, hello. And 
how are you two sort of thing. And we're like, well, let's, let's, do you want to have a beer, fellas? And then out of the corner of our eye, this, this uh, waiter pushing a trolley comes out. And of course, they have tea and cakes at 4 p.m., not, not beers. So we're sitting there holding our cans going, okay, this is a good first day in the British Army, you know. <laughs> um, I, think that, I think that shows, though, why beer is free in the British Army and not in the Australian Army. <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, a, it's a it's a high commodity. A, a friend a friend told me that Australians live much more like in the moment and are much more kind of free will free wheeling than the British are. Uh, that's true, but I think at heart it has to do with the. Um, Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Class-based nature and hierarchical nature of our society. You know, um, um, as an Australian Army officer, we had rank and position, but, you know, you might have gone to the same school and come from the same suburb as your soldiers, you know what I mean? There's really no difference. Um, in the British Army, and I don't want to go too far here, but because obviously each person is different, brings something different to the table, but you can still feel uh, that sort of um, socioeconomic differences that, you know, the officer class was a bit different. And these guys that I was with were not like the guards. And, you know, if you're, a, if you're from the Scots guards or the Irish guards, you, that's a... Uh, you know, you used to have to have your own income to come into it to be able to afford all the gear. These guys weren't like that, but but, but they were, they were. And there was a, so there was little cultural differences like that, Jack, which um, which stood out, and that that changed how you interacted with each other. It changed how you interacted with soldiers. But overall, uh, after a few funny sort of teething problems like this, we we got into it. And anyway, the battalion was based in Germany deployed to the Balkans. They'd been there before. They'd done a tour of Kosovo. They knew what they were doing. They were very, very good. Um, and um, my myself and the other Aussie, they they, they were not going to give us commanded troops. <laughs> so we were, not, we were not given a unit as such. So it's like, okay, what jobs, what jobs can we do? Uh, and there was two that stood out. One, was, which my mate did, was um, Simic, right? Uh, and the other one, which the commanding officer asked me to do, was called Factions Liaison Officer. And I was like, oh, Factions Liaison. What sort of faction are we talking about? Oh, the Serbian Army Faction. I'm like, well, aren't they sort of the enemy? Um, well, not really. It's peacekeeping, but yes, they're the bad guys. So, okay, so I'm a liaison officer to the enemy. Yeah, roughly speaking. Okay, cool. So so I thought that was like, that was, that was going to be a great job. And it was. And, um, you know the bulk of the the infantry battalion, and they. This is what the Brits did do amazingly well. They they deployed a full armored infantry battle group from Germany to the Balkans. I'm talking Challenger main battle tanks, full armored engineer squadron, warrior armored vehicles, everything. So they sort of had their 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 function, their play. But the the I thought the real interesting work was what what we were doing out there in the community, basically. In, in my case. Um, daily interaction with Serbian army in t in, with a couple of different angles. Um, one being sort of enforcement of the Dayton Peace Accords and making sure, for example, uh, that they weren't stashing the 
trigger mechanisms to the anti-aircraft weapons somewhere, you know. Um, there was sort of reconnaissance and surveillance aspect to it in terms of overwatch covertly and overtly about their training activities and movements. So we had teams sort of hiding in the hills doing that sort of stuff. Uh, there were weapons inspections and seizures. Uh, and then there was true sort of liaison in terms of human interaction and getting to know these people. And maybe it was because I was an Aussie. Uh, some of these Serbian people, of course, had relatives in Australia. Oh, yes, I have brother in Sydney, you know, something like that. So, uh, or, or maybe it was because we culturally were a bit different to the Canadians, Americans, Brits and Dutch and all the other NATO forces they'd been used to. So, you know, I'd like to think I had had a bit of success in in that field. In fact, at the end of that tour, just jumping to the finish, there's a lot that happened in the, in the, in the interim. Um, this Serbian colonel asked me if I wanted a commission in the Bosnian Serb army. <laughs> Uh, he goes, do you, I, I make you major. He goes, well, I said, well, I'm, he said, that's a promotion. You're only a captain. I said, oh, uh, that's a nice offer, Colonel, but I, I think I'll just, I think I'll go home and, and remain <laughs> a captain in, in the Australian Army. Um, but look, it was a very, very serious job. A um, uh, couple of little anecdotes for you. Um, uh, that was 2001, time that September 11 happened, and I was there in the Balkans when that happened. And, um, uh, the, the Serb networks that we had created, um, both in the community and the military, um, were, were quick to call me and say, oh, you must want to know where the jihadist training camps are. I'm, I'm talking three days, two days after the attack. And we're like, um, okay, yeah, 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 jihadist training camps. Um, please tell us where they are. Uh, you didn't tell me about this last week uh, or the month before. No, we didn't think important, but now it's important. Okay, okay, please tell me where. Grid reference, you know, pattern of life, all that. And then they ask, and we can help you go get them. <laughs> and we're like, right. uh, we'll take it from here, fellas. You know, you, 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 I think you've done enough uh, in terms of the inter-ethnic um, warfare. So that was an interesting year to be there. Uh, it was the year after the, the bombing of, um, where was that? Where was the Serbian embassy bombed or there was it was in Bel it was in Belgrade there was some NATO mission where they actually bombed Belgrade in 2000 or 99 and there was quite a lot of um, anti-NATO anti-European sentiment at that time um, I will highlight what I learned and I learned a lot from the commanding officer of the regiment at that time um, he if you want to look him up he, he's sadly passed away but his name was Henry Worsley and he was a he was an incredible officer. He 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 was the CO of this regular light infantry battalion, but he had spent a large portion of his career in the special British special operations community, both in twenty two SAS and um, I might get this wrong if you looked on his uh, some further background on him online, but I'm pretty sure he'd been part of uh, the specialist int debt that used to do sort of undercover and covert ops in in Northern Ireland. So he, uh, 14th he, he, Intelligence Company. 14, 14 Inc. Company, that's right. I think that's exactly what it's called. And um, a, he, he later uh, passed away as a result of a polar exploration. He was one of those guys that oh, wow. would, walk, he would walk across Antarctica. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's what he did. And, and unfortunately, it led to, it led to his death. Um, he contracted an infection, I believe, on one of his trips and was uh, emergency evacuated to somewhere in South America, but unfortunately passed away. But um, in, and in later times, I ran into him 
in Afghanistan. And what an incredible experience that was to meet a guy like that five, ten years down the track yeah. and and reconnect um, in in a different place in a different time. But at the, at the at that moment, you know, he 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 had not just that I suppose quality of special operations leadership, but you know, he wanted to impart in me and others how to work in this environment. You know, how how do you how do you understand the drivers of conflict? How do we how do we create our own situational awareness and intelligence networks? How do we how do we build that through our op, op tempo and op posture? Um, so I learned a hell of a lot um, from 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 Colonel Henry, and um, you know, it was a real real sad sad moment in my professional career where I heard that he'd gone. But that was a it was an important part. Um, um, the, the the NATO commander at the time of the multinational division was a guy called Canadian officer called Rick Hillier. I think he went on to become like their chief of defence, but at that time he was a he was a um, two star. And um, one of the stories I'll I'll say of uh, what we did. So the the uh, I worked with him very closely in terms of um, the peace enforcement mission and liaison with um, uh, with Serbian command. Uh, and yet one mission which was outside of the NATO uh, mandate, and this will interest um, some of your listeners and, and perhaps even some of them were part of it, was the, the special operations task to track down and capture the uh, Serbian war criminals, mm-hmm. you know, the, that were under um, arrest warrants from The Hague, was a national command mission. So that, that, that was a direct command mission from... Uh, I imagine 22 SAS, and we knew they were there. We had a bit to do with them, but it was it was it was there was a silent wall between the NATO mission and then the the, the sort of um, war hunt uh, the war criminal hunting mission. Uh, and sometimes that <laughs> didn't always go to plan. And I remember this one particular occasion with General Hillier, and he and I were at a Serbian army encampment of some sort. We had a meeting set up with this particular guy. Um, and as it happened on that day, the the twenty two SAS guys executed their, you know, their capture mission to get this guy. He had a warrant out against him. Everyone knew that. And so we were literally in the car park, getting out, walking towards this building to get this guy. And in fly the choppers and the black vans and dudes jump out and they they nabbed this guy literally right in front of us. And and then Xville. and me and the general are standing there going, and of course everyone thought we. Right. Were the the decoy right we we were the lure uh and i don't know general might have known about it but i certainly didn't um uh, and he didn't certainly give on that he knew about it uh and uh, that was a surprise morning and um it was an example of uh even many many years after the sort of rump conflict had finished just how seriously uh we were going after the war criminals and you know i think those of you who follow bosnia and i continue to follow it to this day um you know, um, Rako Mladic and, and Slobodan Milosevic, they, they took decades to track down and hunt and yeah. capture, but we got them, you know. Yeah. And, I, and I think that, um, you know, holding those people to account, um, and I, I know that the U.S. special operations community was deeply involved in that task for a long, long time. And, you know, I would posit that going after those sort of guys, uh, we sort of lost at least in the public domain, lost sort of track of that after 9-11 and our hunt for global global terrorist networks. But, you know, finishing that mission and successfully prosecuting those those kind of people was um, very, very important. And I think 
uh, yeah, personally speaking, the, the brutality of that war uh, and the sheer, um, the sort of brazenness of the murder of your fellow neighbour who, you know, previously had lived next door to you was something that really deeply affected me. Um, not in a fear way or a, or a sort of a shocking way, but in a way that I wanted to understand it. Yeah, and I suppose it was in part, in part, um, one of the triggers for me to to look at trying to understand that that conflict a bit a bit better. Yeah, I, and it's interesting too because it's something that always happens someplace else. But when you're in the middle of it, you wonder, well, what would it take for it to happen at home, or you know, in some place more civilized, or that we think we consider yep. more civilized? Sure, know? sure. And I've got to be careful that you you're self aware of your own sort of. Uh, uh, intercultural prejudices there that you know right. do we accept violence in Rwanda you know do we understand it in Rwanda but we don't understand it when we see it in in contemporary Europe right. <laughs> uh, uh, you know I'm sure there's similar similar feelings in Ukraine and other places at the moment but you're right you're right Dave it was a it was a, a visceral thing that these were by all accounts um, you know modern sophisticated people the country of Yugoslavia was had its problems but it was it was it was um it was a recognizable and, country yeah 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 absolutely abso- absolutely and and then something happened which triggered that that change and i suppose um you know that we could the history of the war there has its own um explanations but um as does the criticism of the international community and what they did there you know that was the start of your president's um uh, what was the phrase um something about humanitarian intervention, you know, like this, this idea that um, we needed to intervene on humanitarian grounds, not just um, arguably today, it's far more grounded in geostrategic issues, but um, at that that time. And so um, that was a a a lot of that Australian army. I I think a lot of that was codified by uh, Samantha power and the right to protect. Yep. Yep. uh, str- I don't want to call it strategy, but doctrine, I suppose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's book she wrote too. Hey, and um, uh, about her experiences, Sam Power, and um, where is she now? She's like the head of USAID or something. Is that? Oh, right? I don't know. She was in the Obama administration. I'm not sure where she is after she that. She was. She she was Obama's ambassador to the United Nations. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, you're right. She had her start of her career. Um, initially as a journalist in the Balkans, I believe. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Because she's an Irish so, citizen. Yeah. Yes, that's right. She was an Irish immigrant to the United Great book. If you can, I forget the title of it, but um, I, I recently um, picked it up in, um, in quarantine and, uh, and, uh, and flicked through it. But yeah, some, some, some... Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply parallels there to her own personal uh, reflections about what had happened in the Balkans and where she took her career and the doctrine that she came up with and later implemented as a, as a sort of policy leader in Obama administration. Um, 
Yeah, so as a, as a young Australian, a young Australian infantry officer, I, I found that an absolutely incredible experience to be doing. Not because I was in command of troops in battle uh, or anything like that, but uh, I, I would argue a far more sort of complex, um, um, you know, situation. And then there were there were uh, the conflict was still very real at that time. Um, uh, one example. Uh, the, the, the government or the, perhaps it was the UN or NATO decided to reopen the, the mosque in the centre of uh, the city of, called Banya Luka, which is the capital of the Serb Republic of, of, uh, of, um, of Bosnia. And um, I think they underestimated the reaction of the local Serbian population and there was huge uh, riots and turnout. In fact, it was tried on two occasions to, to relay the foundation stone of the mosque i forget the islamic word for it but there's a one of the first things they do is lay the foundation stone and the, the in the early 90s the serbs had of course raised it there was there was just, there was nothing left of the mosque and um tens of thousands of people came out in protest uh with some degree of violence and um uh, in fact on one of the occasions uh we we're in the thick of it the U, the the u.s ambassador and many other dignitaries who were there were sort of I don't know what the phrase for it is, Jack. They were, they were, they were isolated from their route of escape by ten to 20,000 Serbs in this building. And um, it took some time to extricate them. And I suppose that was a, an indication of the flashpoints. For me, another interesting part was, again, harking back to the Islamist piece, was how the Bosnia, Bosnian um, influence still continues to this day. And you know, there, there. If I'm not mistaken, there's there was, you know, much like the Chechens, there were Bosnians in, in, in ISIS, and um, that sort of flicker continued for for many, many, many years. So that 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 was an an important um, tour, I suppose, for a young officer. I, I really so, appreciate you, you know, kind of sharing that experience from your perspective. As we've we've talked about Bosnia and uh, and the, the Kosovo quite a bit on this show with past guests. I mean, H.K. Roy. Uh -huh. Mark Giaconia, um, Ron Moeller. Mm -hmm. So we've heard it who from... Was, who was one of your guests that was a, a CIA agent there? He, 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 that was a fascinating... H.K. Roy and uh, Ron Moeller were both CIA. Yeah. 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 And, and Mark, Mark was a 10th Special Forces group. Uh-huh. Um, so, no, it's really cool. And I, I, I enjoy you know, hearing, hearing your perspective, too, coming at it from a different angle. <laughs> Uh, Malcolm, out of curiosity, um, you know, you mentioned briefly that you were there during 9-11 and, you know, there was mm -hmm. still this effort to find, you know, uh, the, you know, uh, Milosevic, the, these criminals. Uh -huh. Was there any shift or noticeable shift in Western policy that also now diverted manpower to find jihadist camps? Not in a, not in an op-tempo way, I don't believe so, no. I mean, I, I think one of the interesting... Uh, although we all witnessed the very rapid sort of reaction and deployment of U.S. forces in particular and some early Australian forces to Afghanistan by the end of 01, um, other than very small uh, reconnaissance and intelligence efforts in the Balkans, no, I didn't discern. It didn't, it didn't result in a change to the ISAF mission, for example. Right, right. Interesting. No. But, but, you know, we, we, we looked at it. Um, it was taken very seriously at the time. Um, I'm not aware of any disruption action or anything else that happened. In fact, I think if we looked back, we'd find that the classification of these safe zones or whatever they were, were really a collection of former 
uh, people who'd been in Afghanistan in the early days and had come back, they may not have even been Bosnian. Um, no. And they'd married and set up sort of little remote villages and that sort of stuff. That, that's my understanding of what we found. I, I imagine that it also becomes very like uh, politically delicate to go after uh, Islamic radicals in, mm-hmm. in that area where mm-hmm. Serbians are viewing mm-hmm. all the Muslims mm-hmm. as radicals. And now, and now you're kind of highlighting that or, or almost validating their belief, right? Absolutely. And, um, you know, we would almost be seen to be partisan to the sort of ethnic nature of that conflict. Right. Um, it'd be interesting to backtrack and look at how later years of the NATO deployment panned out in that regard and how those sort of national special operations and intelligence efforts sort of reacted to that. But, right. Uh, no, you're, you're right. I would, I, I would 100% concur with that, with that observation. Now, you said that this was about the time, or at least this had an influence in your decision mm-hmm. to leave the military and go into mm-hmm. diplomacy. Were there some mm-hmm. formative moments while you're in Bosnia that sort of led to that? Uh, not specifically. Um, as I said to you, I was exposed to the nature of my job to a whole range of different types of actors in the battle space. Uh-huh. And um, people that I hadn't really thought about or been exposed to before. You know, as a young infantry officer, you don't really think about who's an ambassador. What does that mean? What is an aid worker? What's a UN inspector? You know, you don't, you don't hear about that. You don't think about it. So I suppose it was a moment of uh, no trigger point there, but it was, a, it was a fascinating conflict to be involved in from the perspective of the diversity of how the different actors agencies and actors were seeking to have an influence to solve it and the military was only one part of that mm-hmm. and you know i would argue the 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 challenger main battle tanks by that time i mean obviously earlier in the conflict the, the sort of hard um element was more important but um in later times they were purely a show of force depend compared to the the real efforts below the behind the scenes on on the peace process I want to uh, jump into talking about your diplomatic career. I just want to give a mm-hmm. quick shout out first to our other sponsor for the show tonight. It's 10,000 Clothing. And um, I'll tell you uh, viewers out there a little bit about my own experience. I work out two, three times a week normally. Uh, a lot of kettlebell exercises, high intensity training and intervals, um, things that require a lot of movement and full motion, uh, full range of motion. And our sponsor, 10,000 Clothing, provided us with some stuff to try out. And I've been working out wearing their shorts and T-shirt. Actually, Dave is wearing one of their shirts today. Yeah, their, their gear is really nice. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really the nicest workout clothing that I've ever used. The shorts are super comfortable, have everything on it that I kind of needed to have, and while also staying out of the way when you needed to be out of the way. Yeah, um, and, and they're... They're better in public than ranger panties. <laughs> or yeah, those old ranger panties with a yeah. scroll kind of. Yeah, you maybe mothball some of those uh, old PTs that are, are falling apart and get something from 10,000 Clothing. Uh, like I said, I've been using them for weeks now, really enjoying them, and uh, recommend you guys go and take a look at it. The website for them is 10,000.cc. And the promo code you can use is TEAM. It'll get you 15% off your first order. So 10,000clothing.cc and use the promo code TEAM yeah. to get 15% and, off. And, and check out their website. Uh, they have a wide range. I mean, they don't just have like one kind of short. They have 
shorts for running that are specifically designed, shorts for lifting when they know you've got to do like mm -hmm. your squats and stuff. Shorts, uh, yeah, they they're very into like the CrossFit and and you know all the different modalities of full full body uh, exercises. Absolutely. So check them out. They've got some really good gear. So, we like them. Malcolm, uh, if you can lay on us, you know how you then found yourself as an uh -huh. Australian diplomat. Um, mm -hmm. we, I think we, we refer to them normally what foreign service officers. That's right. Uh, what, what, what's the term in Australia? Um, yeah, foreign service officer would be common. Uh, diplomat um, would encompass sort of, well, traditionally there were two types of people at an embassy. There were consular staff and, and diplomatic staff. And that actually related to the accreditation you actually got. You got a different type of passport. Now we just sort of clump that together. Uh, and um, if you're a diplomat, you're on a diplomatic a diplomatic passport. But yeah, so, our, our foreign ministry is called uh, DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Um, some years ago, it was amalgamated with our, our aid agency. Uh, you guys still have a separate um, development agency, USAID, where we're amalgamated. So it's a, it's a holistic trade, foreign policy and aid uh, agency, um, extremely competitive to get into, as you could imagine, and I'm sure the US system is is the same. Um, I was a bit different as someone who's a bit older with a different career. I was uh, called a lateral recruit, someone who sort of comes across in a, at, a, at a different level. Most people still go through what we call the graduate training program. And... Um, it's it's uh, at that time when I joined, uh, which was just after my first tour of Afghanistan and if, uh, some work there, um, the core political staff, like if you take out the people working in the passports office and, you know, the IT section and the property section, it was probably only about 500 people, including people posted overseas and wow. um, working at the headquarters. Um our structure and resourcing um, is a little bit different to the US in that we spend most of our time in the headquarters trying to get out, uh, whereas my, my, my experiences with US diplomats is they're sort of on the posting roundabout and for them to get back to Washington is like a coup. Uh, we're, we're the exact reverse. And it's been a long-standing criticism of the level of resourcing that the Australian diplomatic effort has attracted, actually, um, that it's out of whack with the amount we spend on our defence and border security. And, um, you know, to make a, a budgetary argument for that is hard. What does diplomacy do? How does it benefit the nation um, compared to, you know, buying a submarine, which, which even if it's not been used operationally, still has a deterrence effect, you know, and it's and it, yeah. people like, and, and has an industrial effect. So you're going to build it at home. You know, it's jobs created to do it. Yeah. People think diplomats are just a, uh, you know, cocktail parties and, and the sort of, the perception is it's a waste of money. Uh, of course, the reality is the exact opposite of that. And um, I wanted in, I definitely wanted to do it. Um, I was sort of convinced to do it during my first tour of Afghanistan by uh, the then ambassador, a guy called Brett Hackett. Uh, Australia had just put back in an embassy and he, he and a small number of people were running a pretty small shop. And um, I was there in a political advisor role with the military and I was able to help him out in terms of uh, acting as a quasi additional set of hands for, for him at the embassy. And he said to me, you should, you should really do this full time. And so I, I grabbed that by the hands and I was able to 
successfully get in the in the in the pipeline as what's as a lateral recruit which you're still quite a junior officer but you, you haven't gone through that graduate training program and and you're not part of the sort of uh, be, I suppose it'd be like coming into the military not having gone through the training college or being a platoon commander and you're coming jumping straight in as a company commander or an operations officer in the headquarters and be like who are you like where did you come from what experience are you bringing um uh, culturally, though, uh, one interesting thing about the diplomatic service in Australia, even though they don't, uh, it is very elite. Um, they don't, once you're in, they don't really care who you are or where you did before. You know, it, it, it's, it's what you do now and your reputation and credibility from day one. And so that was quite refreshing, actually, compared to the military, where you sort of have this accumulative career you know where you sort of right. everything you've done even eight years ago is sort of remembered and judged right uh and it, it is in diplomacy too but you sort of start fresh if you know what i mean no one really cares whether you're a lawyer beforehand or a soldier in my sense in my case um so for me it was quite a natural transition um others ha haven't had a successful jump um they're too structured they're too used to the military sort of chain of command and and um they're not able to sort of there's different types of people in diplomacy you know not everyone's a uh not everyone's into running and lifting you know not everyone's into everyone brings a very very different um take to it um in fact i remember one pre-deployment uh, briefing session we we did and um i went to our sort of mission readiness center in Sydney and uh, the military one, I mean. And I took up with me a very small number of diplomatic staff. And it was one of those sort of briefing sessions where before you go to Afghanistan, the, 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 the military sort of pulls everyone together from around the country and you, you're in an auditorium of like 200, 300 people and you get the cultural briefings and the safety briefings and all that stuff. Um, they're not for people who are part of a formed unit. They're all the, all the also people. Like if you're going to go and be the, the, the SO2 something something in the headquarters everyone comes together at this briefing center and the people that were with me were one young two one of them was a woman and secondly one of them was a an asian woman if i'm not mistaken in terms of her ethnic background and we're sitting at the front of this auditorium we turn around and she, and she goes every single other person in this room is a white anglo-saxon male <laughs> and it was a it was a very interesting dichotomy between the types of people we get in um, the foreign service and the types of people we get in the military horses for courses everyone's a bit different but just an interesting observation about the differences there so yeah it took me a while to get in uh jack but once i was in i loved it and it was a very very rewarding career and i found it um whether you were doing uh short-term missions uh long-term postings the headquarters based work uh it was it was incredible it was a, it was a a treasured experience. So what was your first posting like? What was that that transition like for you from mm -hmm. the military to mm -hmm. the foreign service? Mm -hmm. um, well, I'd spent four years as a defense civil servant. So okay. I had that sort of bit of a buffer. So there was a bridge being there. A, okay. Being a, being a bureaucrat, if you put it that way, rather than a soldier. Um, my my foreign service career played out in two halves five years in the headquarters and five years continuous overseas service but within that first five years uh i was almost continuously overseas anyway on short-term missions um i started out being a um 
the team leader for our emergency response team going to Samoa after the tsunami in 2010. I led the Australia-based team that went over. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, another self-depreciating story about that. So I, a tsunami happened, like, I don't know, Australia time, like 4 a.m. or something. Um, we take our responsibilities in the Pacific very seriously. We, we stood up a... Um, interdepartmental emergency task force the australian government decided to send assistance and literally within hours we'd formed a, a team to go and i was asked to to lead it um grab my, went straight home grabbed my bag literally got on a ch chartered jet from canberra to brisbane small plane joined up with the main force i'm talking doctors nurses search teams do you know what i mean this type of stuff that you'd take to a post um tsunami environment and myself and a, uh, two or three one, uh, uh, diplomats at the sort of head of it. Uh, get there, there's like, a, I want to say 100 people. And we're getting on a chartered jet. And we're about to fly off to Samoa. And we go to walk out the customs area. And I'm like, shit, I forgot my passport. <laughs> I'm like the foreign ministry leader of this team and I forgot my passport. And because uh, it literally it all happened in hours and I'd just gone straight home, grabbed what gear I thought I needed. And it was too late. Like, I, I could, there's nothing I could do. I was, I was Brisbane from Canberra is like two and a half thousand kilometers. I'd already been in one charter flight. Uh, the Australian immigration people didn't seem to care. They're like, oh, have you got any ID? And I, I had my driver's license. So they sort of snapped a photo of it and registered that I'd left the country. And they said, oh, but you might have a hard time getting back in. And I was like, all right, well, that's the future problem. Let's just go. So we get on the plane. I can't remember how far it was, maybe five, six hour flight. We land in Samoa. This is literally 10 hours after a tsunami. And I'm turning up with an emergency team. And I'm like, how am I going to get in? I mean, it's still a foreign country. So I put myself at the front of the line. Uh, I walked straight up to the Samoan customs officials. And this is before you know, instant messaging where I could have tipped off my staff in right. country, right? There's, there's, there's nothing of that. Uh, and I can't even remember if they had comms working. Uh, and I just said, I, my name is Malcolm Braley. I'm the leader of the Australian response team and I don't have my passport. <laughs> and they were like, walk straight on through, sir. <laughs> nice. uh, so that was a, a lesson learned. And then I had to, I, eventually I had to get it shipped over and I, I got home. How, uh, how, how hard had Samoa been hit? Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty hard. This was uh, around the same time as the Aceh tsunami, which was far, far bigger in um, Indonesia. You know, hundreds of thousands of people killed. This, this was not quite that scale. Um, but Samoa was hit very, very hard. And it was uh, any of the coastal regions where there were villages uh, down at sea level. Some of them were, were, were decimated. Um, and... Uh, a lot of their major infrastructure was okay. It sort of hit the northern um, and northeastern sort of sector of the island. So a lot of the capital city was on the south side. There were huge ocean suck and different impacts there, but it wasn't like the the centre of the city was um, was affected. But yeah, it was it was very tragic, and um, um, it was a, it was my first foray um, into a sort of a humanitarian disaster. Uh, situation if you like so that was that was that was one that, to answer your question though, that was probably one of the first things i did and um really that the head of mission at the time uh what we call in a commonwealth country the high commissioner 
um, was an awesome guy called Matt Anderson. Uh, and he, he also came from a former military background. Interestingly, he is now the head of the Australian War Memorial here in Canberra. Uh, post his diplomatic service so uh, an incredible guy and um, yeah we approached it like a mission he goes right Mal I want you doing future operations I want you running this 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 you know and so we just turned up and bang you just you just go into mindset and um, uh, you 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 know a hundred civilian doctors nurses and search and rescue teams are just crying out for a bit of command and control right. <laughs> so in, in that instance Dave I just sort of reverted to type yeah. and um, lead from the front Give clear orders and instructions, timings, coordination, admin, boom, away you go. Um, so that was, that was very interesting. And then after that role, I spent another three years. So as I said, five years at home time. My second three years was a fascinating job. Uh, I was the um, intelligence and special operations liaison officer for our consular division. Now, what that meant was... I was the, the 24-7 interface with our threat warning system, our national intelligence system. We're going to high threat reporting, kidnap for ransom, uh, impending terrorist attacks, this type of thing. And I don't know how it works in America, but uh, I'm pretty sure it's the same. Canada, UK do it as well. You know, if we have information that's alluding to, credible information alluding to a terrorist attack or a kidnap, we're going to do something about it. Now, mm -hmm. it's one of the rare cases where you actually can take sensitive national intelligence and act on it in advance in the protection of Australian interests and Australian citizens. So that was an awesome job. Um, that also coincided with the initial years of what was later called the Arab Spring. And there was a number of uh, crisis response missions, contingency planning, preparations and others which we did in that in those few years so i spent you know half of the year two-thirds of the year deployed all over the place um north africa sub-saharan africa all over the middle east doing bits and pieces of work relating to principally relating to uh, consular contingency planning and making sure our embassies in high, uh, were well prepared for uh uh, um, you know, large-scale conflict or evacuate, mass evacuation, mm -hmm. NEO operations, I suppose you'd, you'd call it in, in the military, um, that we were prepared for that, um, that we were well plugged in and understood the, the intersection of civil unrest with terrorism. And, you know, this is 2010, 11, 12, I want to say. So it wasn't like we didn't know about it, like, you know, no. Iraq was running. Um, but this was before, you know, the sort of, um, well, Libya was in that time period, right? So we were starting to worry about jihadists in sub-Saharan Africa, et cetera, et cetera. Somalia was a longstanding concern for us and uh, our interest in Kenya, et cetera, et cetera. So a really, really interesting time. What was, uh, a bunch. what was the diciest situation you got into doing that job? I bet there was some... <laughs> I bet there are some experiences. Okay, 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 okay. Two quick stories. One serious, one funny. Uh, I did a job in Nigeria and I took a small team of dudes, put it that way, uh, <laughs> and um, low-key, right? Like low-key. Uh, this particular mission was about 
preparing for what we call phase zero for hostage recovery operations. So not in response to an actual kidnap event, but what would we do if? Right, right. right. So how do we do a unilateral mission? You know, everything from where do we get our own aircraft from, what are the routes to and out of countries, blah, 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 right? Um, So we turn up in, in Nigeria uh, we have a high commission. Australia has a small team there in, in the capital city called Abuja. Uh, so we get up there, get up to Abuja. I think we that was a whole journey in itself. Anyway, we get there and the, the crew, the Australian diplomatic crew, lovely, nice team, nice team. And we said, okay, what can we do tonight? Where can we go? Is there a restaurant we can go to? And they're like, yeah, yeah, here's some recommendations. Uh, there's a nice restaurant here. It's a little bit out of town, but yeah, you should try it. Just ask for a taxi from your hotel this is like this older lady who's like the the senior we call them the sayo senior administrative officer of the embassy right supposedly who's over across all the security functions consular admin like should have a finger on the pulse anyway they she's obviously just dusted off this list from <laughs> i don't know when i don't know when they given the last right. a restaurant recommendation in abuja but me and these two, these couple of likely fellas, we say, well, we good. let's go. So we get in this taxi. He's taking us out of town. We're like up this hill. There's like suburbs. It's dark. We're like, there's no one up here, man. What is this? And uh, we eventually find this address. There's nothing there. And uh, maybe there was like an old sign, tin sign hanging on the letterbox. <laughs> right. box. And, a uh, tumbleweed blowing. And, yeah. Tumbleweeds, right. <laughs> and then there's like, of course, of course, like shooting breaks out. And we're like, what the? What is that? <laughs> and uh, look, I'm not going to turn it into something it wasn't. It was just guards having a shootout in the street of some break-in maybe. I don't know. But uh, our taxi driver was like, damn it, he was, he was going to bug out. We were going nowhere. So we, we jumped out of the car, bullets flying, not towards us, but like in that vicinity, and we self-extract on foot. And we were like 10 Ks out, maybe, from the hotel, like on the, on the outskirts of town. And we, we, we sort of do this nighttime uh, <laughs> extraction back to the hotel and order room service and a beer. And then the next day, I ring this woman and go, what the hell were you telling us about it? to go to this restaurant that doesn't exist? Yeah, take uh, So to, to those guys who were with me on that mission, they'll remember it. It was hilarious. But... Uh, uh, then led astray by our own team. But look, really interesting job we did, Dave, was um, on the serious side, was um, look at national evacuation operations for uh, South Sudan. And um, at that time, we had, uh, I want to say, 10, 20, 30 military people in the mission, the UN mission there. Mm-hmm. And we also, had, we also had a strong citizen presence. So probably people who'd been a refugee to Australia in the previous years, those Somali uh, sorry, um, South Sudanese, South Sudan's created as a country. They've gone back to contribute, work in their government. Um, nonetheless, they're still an Aussie citizen, so we count them in our numbers and how we get them out. And so we did a, 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 a small mission, uh, kicked off out of Kenya, went to South Sudan, hired a car, and proceeded to try and map out how we would do a self-extraction. You know, if we had to, if we had to get a team out, how would we do it? And it was south through... This sort of, uh, so the main conflict's north, obviously, you don't go that way. So we punched south to Uganda and um, not a huge distance. I think it took us two, three days or something, um, crossing to Uganda, which itself has its own um, challenges. But that was, a, that was an, an interesting example of 
one of the jobs we did. Cross-border, uh, Neo, low profile. How do we plan it? How do we do it? What resources do we need? And and let's recce it. Let's actually do it for real. So if, if it's called upon, we know we know how to do it. Um, so that was a fun couple of years. Included some trips to crazy places like Yemen. Uh, I was in Sanaa with our ambassador for counterterrorism. Probably, uh, look, this is just before President Saleh fell. Um, there'd been a bunch of incidents there, including um, the British uh, deputy ambassador's car had been attacked with a... RPG or some sort of um, rocket attack. And again, the interest in Yemen was not purely on terrorist organizations, but there was an Australian connection. There were, there were Australian people there who, right. had, who had traveled to join um, jihadist groups. Uh, most notoriously, there was a few women who were a part of that and um, they married um, people legitimately um, and been sort of seduced into this world and had found themselves stuck in Yemen. Yeah. So it was, that was an interesting and a really cool period of, of my life and working very closely with a whole bunch of agencies, as I mentioned. Um, you know, some big wins, um, a lot of pain. Um, we didn't always get it right, but um, in terms of our protection of Australian interests and Australian citizens offshore, um, you know, I think I think that, we, we did a good job and um, that was done through national level resources and some quite unorthodox cooperation between agencies on the ground, which was cool to be a part of. I, I don't I don't know much about our own uh, foreign service. So and, and you actually might know because you interacted with them. But the, these types of operations don't seem like they would fall within the purview of of, of a of one of our diplomats or foreign service officers, it seems like it would be more on the yeah. intelligence military side. You got, you got, you guys have a very strong um, state department security service uh, who may look after that. Um, I don't know how state department does their consular operations. Like how do they structure and plan and deploy for that sort of stuff? Like how would a, how would a U.S. embassy be evacuated? Well, Which has happened. I think right, a lot sorry. of times that's more a military neo type of thing. I, I mean, I know in the past at least that we've definitely had like SF guys go and do that. Yeah, yeah. But but as as somebody of as a member of the Foreign Service, you are actually going to these places with these teams, and, and, and again, phase, I, any kind of phase zero planning is going to be military. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I wonder if we if our services don't do it. And I don't know if they don't, but I've never heard of that. Um, do you think it's more because your diplomatic corps is so much smaller, your intelligence service is so much smaller, your military is smaller, and so it, it's more people just roger up and it's more integrated? Uh, I'll, two comments on that. One, the cooperation with the military and the diplomatic service is enshrined in a bit of doctrine. Like we're talking um, the deployment of you know, augmentation teams, defense liaison teams, situational awareness teams, this sort of stuff, right? It's it's enshrined in doctrine and uh, in both sides of the fence, right? And I'd be surprised if it wasn't for you too. Um, uh, Australia, like America, Jack, I might be getting this wrong, but you have a very strong, what they call country team approach. So what that means is the American ambassador for any situation, crisis situation or other one, there's a single, there's a single point of command and responsibility that rests with that person 
um, particularly where it's this type of crisis response or organ, and we have the same mindset. So, you know, if we deploy a military assistance team to, I'll give you a good example. I wasn't part of this, but there was a, you know, the civil unrest in Beirut, mass evacuation operations. Their embassy is reinforced with a defence supplementation team, and so there's an operational focus to that, but there's also planning and preparatory versions of that in the background that what we call contingency planning. So uh, it, 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 that's, and what happened during the Middle East uh, cri uh, crisis, the Arab Spring, as well as the sort of ripple effect of that across uh, um, the whole MENA region was there was a large number of incidents that caused us to really look sharply at how we look after our citizens. Right. It seems like a lot of planning because if Australians are anything like Americans, the State Department can tell them all day long, you need to get out of this country. And people are like, yeah, <laughs> whatever. We're yeah. fine. We're good. You're right, man. Whether people come or not yeah. is another question. Right. Uh, although sometimes they come to the party and you, they go, oh, here's an Australian passport. We've never heard of you before. Um, no, one funny one was the Arab <laughs> Spring was uh, we did a we did a like a sponsored civil aviation evacuation out of Cairo. So Egypt never really went south, but it was serious enough that people wanted to get out. And we organised with our national airline called Qantas to do this flight. And I think we packed maybe two or 300 people on it. And um, our secretary at the time, as a guy called Dennis Richardson, amazing guy, was the head of our intelligence services, ASIO, Australian ambassador in Washington, very, very experienced senior diplomat someone managed to send him a message i don't know how uh asking if they could claim their frequent flyer points for the for for That's operation amazing. out of Cairo. <laughs> and he would tell this story like as if he was flabbergasted someone would actually write to him like imagine someone writing not the secretary of state but the secretary of the department i don't know what you guys call it like the head of the the bureaucratic head of the state so that was a funny that's a funny one there <laughs> that's incredible uh, and after that, after that five years, I then was posted back to Kabul. So this time, Australia had a stronger embassy presence, uh, full bore embassy, and I went back for my second second um, bite at the cherry. I had worked in Afghan 05, 06, and then for a year in 07, uh, and I went back for a second stint uh, as a diplomat in 2013. What, what was that like, and what was Australia's posture towards Afghanistan and the security situation there at the time? Mm. Um, it's, it's, look, our original commitment back in, you know, 01 and through that sort of period was definitely in the context of our alliance commitments to the US, you know. Same, same for what later we came into Iraq, you know. There were, there, there were national strategic interests in play in terms of global terrorism, etc. But, but principally, my personal view uh, was that alliance... Uh, credibility, if you like, played a key role in that. And certainly that flavoured the nature of our original deployments in terms of those stacked to be special operations. I mean, they were the guys that had the best interoperability, had the most op, op experience and who, who were most quickly able to adapt. Um, like every other nation in Afghanistan, guys, we, we morphed, we changed, we got into provincial reconstruction, then we got into, you know, the training game, you know, with the Afghan army, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it was a bit of a quagmire. I mean, you, you, I mean, we're welcome. You're welcome. We're welcome to talk about that and debate it if you want. But, um, 
I came in second time around. So 0567 was in that lead up. And then in 2013, I was posted to the embassy as a political officer in charge of our, um, um, broadly speaking, if I can put it this way, our outreach and reconciliation efforts with the Taliban. And the context for that at the time was that in 2013, Australia had won a seat on the UN Security Council, which you guys are a P5 member. That's half of the course for you. But for Australia, uh, that's a big moment. And um, that gave us a big step up in our diplomatic efforts in Afghanistan and, and worldwide. And um, we, at that time, we were the chair of uh, what's called the uh, Al-Qaeda and Taliban committee, which I'm, if I'm not mistaken, was a Security Council Resolution 1267. So there was a, a very strong interest in um, the monitoring and enforcement of those sanctions. But also at the time, you'd recall 2013 was the very first time we saw Taliban move to Doha and want to set up uh, an office to actually talk to the world. And so I got involved in that work, both through the lens of the Security Council and, but also through the lens of our in-country reconciliation and rehabilitation programs, which were, I don't know if you guys ever had anything to do with that in Afghanistan, but uh, they were pretty small scale, but they did exist. Um, I worked very closely with um, and I'll name them today because I know they're out, they've escaped there out of Afghanistan. Um, with the Afghan, what was called the High Peace Council. You might remember the chair of that was a guy called Rabani. He was assassinated and the deputy chair took over a guy called Masum Stanagzai. And um, part of my job was to work very closely with him and the High Peace Council to look at how the Afghan government did its own uh, peace process and outreach, Taliban movement and reintegration. Um, we worked very closely with uh, a number of what you might call reformed Taliban leaders from both political and military spectrum, although that classification's pretty loose. Right. Um, but but they weren't like active commanders. They were they were they were um, in some cases people who had um, officially reconciled. I think was the term with. President Karzai at the time, and and were allowed to perform certain functions. Others were a bit more on the margins, and um, yeah, it was awesome. Like you know, the job of the diplomat is to. I, uh, my children often ask me, "What does a diplomat do?" You know, uh, and one of the ways I explain it is to say, "We're a bit like a journalist for Australia." You know what I mean? You 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 don't know when you need the networks. You don't know when you need the information. So you've got to be out there on the street building relationships, network, credibility, stories that help you get to the kernel of the problem and understand the place. And um, there, there's an additional part to it, which is the, the, the job to impart and influence, right? Impart our interests and monitor those. But there's the understanding part, which is more of the networking and, and the journalism part. So there was a lot of that. And it was a incredible year to be doing that that coincided with the closure of our provincial reconstruction team in in Tarancot. you guys i don't know if you guys ever went to Tarancot and Urizgan province down south um mad place um and that closed in 2013 and that was the sort of uh, 
you know, I suppose my work in Afghanistan bookended it. I wasn't there in 01 or 02 early on, but I, I was able to see the creation of this mission and the closure of it, uh, which was, a, I suppose, a, in hindsight, a tragic privilege, but um, one which, uh, at the time, I felt very passionate about and privileged to be involved in um, and have stayed, tried to stay very close. Shout out, shout out to an American colleague I worked very closely there, a guy called Chris Kalenda, he's DC based now. Um, um, Chris, this one's for he, you, man. Cheers, Chris. Yeah, cheers, Chris. Uh, he was a he was a former um, army officer turned and th through his early experiences on the eastern border uh, with his regiment. Uh, and I'm going to get this exactly wrong, Chris. I'm sorry about this, but he had he had sort of uh, not on his own volition, but he had he had implemented an outreach program to local commanders and he tried to sort of cross the boundary, so to speak, in, in as a regular military officer. He was then called back later as a civilian advisor and he was working very closely with Com ISAF, uh, who was an American general, um, and that was where I worked with him on on the Taliban outreach style movements. He's, he's now retired. He later did a PhD in London and um, he's a great guy, fascinating guy, um, and running running some of his own businesses and advisory stuff at the moment in in stateside. Malcolm, what were what were the significant differences that you noticed between the two thousand five seven timeframe and two thousand thirteen mm -hmm. when you went back? Um, the main one was though, even though I was not involved in combat operations myself, was the sheer op tempo and reactions of the insurgency. You know, back in 05, uh, we were driving around Tarrancot. I mean, it was in a Humvee, but it was pretty straightforward, right? Little fob, USPRT, ODA, <laughs> and just go out the gate and go and talk to people. Right. Um, what happened over time, and we can debate how our own force posture and greater presence sort of provoked or reacted a greater insurgent response, right? The old uh, hornet's nest analogy. You know, you go, up a, you go up a valley and someone shoots at you. So, well, okay, we went up that valley. We never got shot up there before. Well, we never went up there before. Now it becomes an insurgent hotspot, blah, blah, blah. And that was definitely a change. I mean, you saw over those inceding years through 9, 10, 11, 12, you know, significant combat operations at scale uh, that just had not appeared in the early days. Um, so that was an obvious difference. Um, another one was the, 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 the nature of the campaign, well, the mission changed, at least for Australia, to be much more on training assistance of the Afghan National Army. You know, there was a, there was a pullback, I think, from reconstruction efforts. I mean, there, there was localised versions of that to do development programs and stuff like that, but not not like what the original intent of the PRT was, the old ink spot sort of counterinsurgency strategy you might remember from the very first PRTs which went out there. Then there was the clumping in of counter-narcotics uh, counter operations and all that sort of stuff too. You know, right. the early days, we very much avoided that. Um, later, there was a recognition that this was a, fueler of the insurgency, you know, was, was contributing to significant fundraising for the Taliban movement, et cetera, et cetera. And they later became legitimate target and a whole bunch of, you know, um, combined operations with civilian agencies, et cetera, et cetera, getting after um, narcotics in Afghanistan.
Malcolm, can you tell us then how uh, you went from Afghanistan to getting involved with Indonesia? Sure. Um, the simple answer is I applied for a posting and, you know, while I, I basically went from one to the other. I was lucky enough to get a back-to-back posting, pretty rare in Australia, but um, uh, I finished up in Kabul in like first quarter of 2014 sometime, came back, did some language training and was straight over to Indonesia this time with my family um, in sort of mid to late 2014. So in one sense, Jack, it was a just an accident of posting, you know, you apply for a job, you get it, you go. Um, I could have equally ended up in any other part of the world. Could have ended up in Geneva or, or um, Port Moresby, you know. Um, and again, um, sometimes you don't like to say that you were fortunate to land in a job at a time when global terrorism was on the rise. Um, But I landed in Indonesia at a time when the ISIS caliphate was in ascendancy and um, the resurgence of um, radical Islam, militant Islam and terrorism in Indonesia and Southeast Asia more broadly um, had a, a, a massive uptick. And you guys might remember that this had first happened with Jama uh, Islamia. Jama Islamia mm-hmm. in the early 2000s with the two Bali bombings and the Australian embassy bombing. In fact, my own embassy was attacked by JI um, very directly in the capital city of, of Indonesia. And then later in some other significant um, Western hotel bombings, Marriott, JW Marriott, etc., in Jakarta. But after that, the Indonesian police, with assistance of partners from Australia and US and others, had done an awesome job. Like they'd wrapped up, they thought they'd wrapped up Gemma Islamia and they thought they'd put a lid on it. Um, I arrived 2014 and ISIS and the caliphate is the flavour of the day. Um, and there were certainly many, many Indonesians who decided to travel to Syria or attempted to travel to Syria. Not always um, to fight, or at least not what they thought they were going to be doing. Um, There was a sense of the call of the caliphate in that true sense, right? The end of days and that they wanted to be in in the right time, the right place. Um, Different patterns to the original Afghanistan training of Jema Islamia, Jack, where you saw that was a very... uh, very clandestine, careful network that recruited people, groomed them and sent them to Afghanistan for training over a long period of time and brought them back to Southeast Asia uh, to prepare for future um, operations in Southeast Asia, which is what led to Bali bombings, etc. The ISIS phenomenon was very different. Um, It was the lure of the caliphate that was pulling people to Syria. And um, I'm summarising here, but you probably had over a two to three year period, maybe 800 people from Southeast Asia go, mostly Indonesians. Um, And so my job was in part to look at the domestic responses to that, the Australian government's responses to that. Um, There was an uptick in terrorist action, including attacks on the ground in Indonesia at that time, um, including in downtown Jakarta. Um, there was one, was one moment where, uh, for some reason, myself and my team found out about it first, not because of any intelligence warning, just because one of my guys was 
got a phone call from someone who was having to be standing in front of the attacker right in the middle of the city, right, and, and quickly phoned him, and he told me. So we knew about it pretty quick. Um, and it was a sort of a um, small team with, with small arms attacking a police post, spilled over into a Starbucks. They had, they had suicide vests, et cetera, et cetera. So pretty low grade, but at the time it was... Uh, I mean, when that happens in the main street of the city, it's, it's bad, right? Um, anyway, so I knew, I quickly ring the ambassador, boss, this is going down. He's like, okay, kick into gear all our reactions. Uh, and then um, the next thing I did was ring my family, right? I rang my wife. That's what you do, right? There's an attack underway. And uh, she, or maybe, maybe, maybe the security team had actually issued an SMS, because they can do that pretty quick, right? So, dear all staff, stay where you are. There's an attack underway. Boom, SMS goes out to everyone. And um, anyway, I called her, and she I, and I didn't know where she was. She was in a, she was in a shopping center maybe a couple hundred meters away from this attack. And I was like, oh, wow. just, stay, just stay there. And she's like, no way, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to get the kids from school. So she, she did the exact opposite to what we were told to do. God bless her. And... Um, um, she got out of there in our car and attempted to go and get the kids. But after, on that particular day, the city went to lockdown and they thought they were chasing cells all over town, which they weren't. But, um, um, and that, that then went on for a couple of years, guys. And um, uh, my role in the embassy had sort of a couple of different functions. One was that sort of classic interagency coordination and strategy piece. Um, and one which I really enjoyed was, which was a bit more, um, independent was working with Indonesian civil society people about how we could counter this momentum more directly um, through quiet programs within the community. And um, the, the that journey, which I started in 2014, still went on through uh, the next portion of my life. And I eventually left diplomacy after that posting and kept working in Indonesia on those same type of projects. One of the things you mentioned to me was that you got involved in making um, films, counter-extremism films. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, one of the partners that I worked with. Um, that was a tool they used to open discussions with local communities was making these documentary films. And um, again, I'll tell you a bit of a story about this person I worked with um, who I'm still like a brother today. Um, and how's this? We, we were born in the same, not the same day, but the same week in the same month in the same year. He was born in Indonesia. I was born in Australia and later fate brought us together. And we've worked together on many, many projects and had, had a personal friendship since that time. His name's Norhuda Ismail. And he's an incredible, um, man who's very passionate about this. And I'll tell you a little bit about his story quickly because it's it's instrumental to the nature of the approach that I believe works when we're de-radicalizing people. Nohuda had actually been a student at a religious school in Indonesia called a Pesantren, which is like a boarding school for um, Islamic studies. Quite common in Indonesia for people to send their children to these, to these schools. But this particular school uh, in the city of Solo in central Java uh, was the school of a person called Abu Bakr Bashir. And he was the spiritual and um, functional commander of Jema Islamia 
And he'd been a long-time figure in Indonesia back in the 80s and 90s. He'd been behind some of the Afghanistan Mujahideen movements. He, he, he and his network were well-known to Indonesian government and police, but they'd really sort of left him alone. And part of that was his school that he had going. And it wasn't a military school. It was not like that. Uh, it was a religious school. And my, my friend, Nahuda, was a student at that school. And later in his life, he became a journalist, Jack. He, 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 he in fact, worked for Washington Post. Oh, wow. uh, and so he, he, he had a secular career. He went on to university and stuff. And um, he was back in Indonesia on a job when Bali bombings happened. And his news agency said, get down there and report on it, figure out what happened. So he went there. And within a couple of days, maybe even sooner, the Indonesian police released the suspect list of people involved. And he realized that one of these guys was his roommate at wow. this school. And from that moment, he devoted his life, continues to devote his life to figuring out the why and, and how to pull people back. Um, and he, he's, he, he, he asked himself a lot of questions and he, he, uh, he's since challenged and supported and helped numbers of, of former fighters um, in his life and with our work together. Anyway, one of the things we did uh, together with him and he was the front of it he's the creative guy he's the director you know he did it all uh was to make some documentary films about uh people's people's stories and how those stories can then be used uh to hopefully change the course of people's um radicalization pathway um two films i'll mention to you quickly one um called jihad selfie about a young guy called akbar who was a student in turkey and he was um radicalized online to join ISIS. And fortunately, Nuhuda and our, our networks were able to uh, sort of catch him before he did that. Coincidentally, we were in, he was, Nuhuda was in the region doing a, some filming anyway and met this kid and then sort of created this documentary about that relationship and the journey that we had with him and how he convinced him to come home to his mother and um, uh, his his pathway since then, and he's he's a. He, I mean, he never he never went there. He had friends that went there, but he he never went to Syria. So his was like a the success story about how he stopped someone. Another film we made it was called Seeking the Imam, and it was about a young girl and her family. Um, her name's Dania. Again, I've you know worked with her for many years now, and um, she had her case is well documented. I mean, she convinced her family to travel to Syria um, and join the caliphate uh, and, uh, and I talk extended family, like a father, grandmother, siblings, everyone. And when they got there, they figured out it wasn't what they wanted. And um, um, there's a number of tragic elements to that, but she was able to contact people on the outside. She was in the, she was in Raqqa and um, she was able to using a people smuggler get to um, I think it's still it's still operative. It's the Al Hol camp, the refugee camp out of Raqqa, which at the time was like just outside ISIS control. Maybe I'm not sure. Um, this is like 2017. Mm -hmm. And anyway, um, Nahuda and a small team flew over there. They were put in touch with her, and they were able to, to be frank rescue her from and her family from that situation pulled her out on the ground extraction mission and she was brought back to indonesia and her father and uncle were put in prison uh she wasn't um and she underwent 
uh, this sort of self-process of realization about what she'd done and, and she <laughs> wanted to give back and help people like her who'd been misled by uh, online radicalism. I mean, a lot of this was online research that they'd done. Uh, anyway, we made a film about her journey, a documentary film about her her experiences, a very powerful film. Um, there's a third film we made about um, called called Pangantin, which means bride in Bahasa Indonesia. And again, it was about these women who uh, who were married to jihadists and married specifically for the purpose of conducting an attack together, and um, had in two cases very famously had their that attack disrupted by Indonesian police and ended up in prison. And so we were able to access them and interview them. Uh, um, I, I won't claim that in that particular case, they, they were on a de-radicalization pathway, but we were able to sort of work with them and capture that experience in a film. It's interesting. So that's one, that's, that's I, one uh, aspect of our work together. And there was a whole bunch of stuff we did then and in later years uh, about um, uh, helping former in helping former terrorists uh, go back to school, get educated, start their own businesses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and um, yeah, their lifelong. We talk about a program. Well, a program implies that it's just a some bureaucratic thing you do and spend people's money. This is more than that. This is about lifelong sort of commitment to people and helping them remain on that pathway to to peace. Year, years ago, I interviewed a. Uh a army US army psychological operations soldier and he was telling me about how he and his unit they funded a de-radicalization de film in Indonesia and mm -hmm. it was interesting because unlike what you're describing he said in their case it was basically completely unknown to the filmmakers and everyone else that there's an american hand behind it funding it and that that actually got me wondering about some other films that have been produced in other contested parts of the world that kind of promote America's view or uh -huh. promo promote America's side in the conflict, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, you could, you, you know, that sort of is another tool of statecraft, isn't it? I mean, that, that type of activity is, uh, um, this was more organic, uh, and we let the process happen now. You know, our and, I'm really, I am so curious about this whole process of de-radicalization. Mm -hmm. And first off, are, are most of the people that you worked with uh, or found success with, do they, do they tend to be people who were sort of brought in younger in sort of that kind of cult mentality where you can open them up to the wider view? Mm -hmm. That is a fantastic question. Um, and I'll try and answer it in a couple of different ways. Uh, there is no um, demographic template we can apply to this, really. Okay. I mean, there are, there are, there, are, there, are, there, are, there are, If this was a sort of a political science theory lesson, we could break it apart and talk about the demographics of right. Islamia and versus ISIS. There, there, there were some categorizable differences in terms of age, etc. And in the age of ISIS and online demographics, definitely younger and faster to radicalization. Okay. Um, from from point of first contact through to conducting an attack, in the con in the case of Jemais Lamia, those guys had spent three, four, five, sometimes seven years preparing. In the age of ISIS, it was like three, four, five months. Wow! So that's a that's a key difference. Um, definitely a bit a bit a bit younger. In the people that were successful, so the people we tried to work with, uh, 
I'll answer it in a slightly different way. Um, explaining radicalization and recruitment terrorism has a number of ways you can cut it, right? Sure. You can take a psychological approach that there's some sort of psychological flaw, pardon me. So, yeah, and they're sort of predisposed to this one, X, Y, Z. The approach we took, and this was a little bit empirical, but also a little bit intuitive, was uh, this was based on um, the attraction of the group. This right. was a social process. Sure. Um, and um, one of the, the characteristics, one of the phrases we use, and in fact, my friend Nohudo, who I was talking about before, he did his PhD on this at Monash University, is about the, the, the problem of toxic masculinity. And you can apply that mindset to a whole range of in-group behaviours, whether it's a, a gang, obviously, criminal gang, but even sports teams, uh, and even in our own armed forces, you know, look at the look at the sort of way that a special operations unit creates itself and recruits to itself. There is a degree of um, social aspiration and then social cementing of those behaviors and and those bonds and uh, my observation and experiences that that holds for terrorist groups as well it's not absolute there's there's a bunch of other reasons you know other people argue it's about socioeconomics etc or all the psychological challenges but i i we would argue it's about social challenge and so our approach um which we sort of um developed over many years was designed to reverse that process, Dave. And we call it the hearts, hands, heads approach. And so whilst most uh, deradicalization programs around the world you might be familiar with, start with ideology. You know, you're in prison, they send in a, an imam and they just talk about the hadith and they try and tell you that your understanding of Islam is wrong or right. even, even now with um, far-right people, maybe they're trying to bring in priests, tell them they're reading the Bible's wrong, I don't know. Right. Um, we, we took the reverse approach. And we looked at their their uh, heart first. In other words, their social connections, their sense of identity as a husband, son, wife, whatever. Uh, but most importantly, their social connections. So the first task is to pull them across to something new. The hands are important. That's where our sort of um, uh, programs to give people practical, not just skills, but purpose and livelihood. Mm -hmm. Alternative livelihoods is the phrase, you know, you might use in, uh, uh, it was used in Afghanistan too, right? You give people another purpose, they'll forget about the insurgency. Uh, and then the heads part of it is a recognition that um, we do want to challenge their use of violence in this case. Mm -hmm. You know, we, they, 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 they may still be a Salafi in terms of ideology, but they're not a Salafi jihadist. That they recognise and, and, and act on that understanding that the use of violence is wrong. And so that was our sort of threshold um, perspective for, for how to bring take people through that process. That, that's interesting because I was curious if you if you guys approached it from sort of a, a theo, like a theological viewpoint, showed them sort of a non-abrogation, you know, a, a, a non-fundamental way, the way most moderates interpret, you know, uh, the Quran as, as no, opposed we, to… We, we look. We're cognizant of that process, um, right. but we. I would. I would argue that that is a later stage discussion to have with someone, not a not a front up stage. So, um, and, and in any event, is can be shot with holes anyway. I mean, what's our interpretation of 
the Quran and hadiths any more than what the Bible says. You know, who, who's one person versus another? Right. So, well, I mean, that's so, yeah, that's the whole Salafia argument, though, right? Is is whether abrogation is is valid or not in the Quran, and and what what did what Muhammad say earlier match or or equal what he said later, or did yeah. what he say later? Totally. Yeah, look, you, there's a there's a there's a case to be made there for what you might call credible voices, right? And and how you bring in credible voices of reason, right? Um, and maybe there's a there's a other people out there doing that, and I think it's an important part of the process. But just to say that the work we've done and thought about and put into action um, was to the left hand edge of that. No, that's that's amazing. I mean, it really is. And and I think that you know, any time when no matter no matter what sort of radical element a person belongs to, if you can introduce them to the humanity of the other side, uh-huh. right? If you can open up to to the 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 other side, they're they're human beings, and one hundred percent, my friend. And um, there's two mantra that I try and live by. There, one is exactly to repeat what you said, which is talk to the other side. Uh, there's a Latin phrase, audiator et pares, or something. It originally came from like the Roman for Senate, which it meant literally talk to your opposition. But in a modern sense, I believe it's a maxim to hold close. Talk to the other side. Who right. are they? What do they want? Right. How do you understand it? Right. Uh, and the other, the other mantra is that everyone deserves a second chance. Yeah. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow for some people. That's hard. Like if you're dealing with a person who's actually conducted murder, like right. a terrorist attack, but you can you can take that that approach for any criminal, right? Who who's conducted some heinous crime, and look, there's going to be I, I recognise there's moral, ethical, and legal limits to that right viewpoint. You're not right? saying just just forgive they're off scot free now. It's no, just, no, give- no. But what does deserve a second chance mean? Uh, it means in the context of can we take people who have crossed that divide and who are committed to attack our very purpose and very soul of living, can they be brought back? And what do we do with them once they're back? So that's, that's my rationale for that, if you like. Of course, there's going to be people who are, remain evil right. know, and, and deserve to be dealt with accordingly. But, but those, um, those aren't the people who are blowing themselves up in markets, right? The, the, the people that are evil aren't, aren't the ones who are actually, you know, committing these acts per se, they're the ones who are, mm-hmm. you know, the Charles Mansons of, of these mm-hmm. groups, mm-hmm. you know. And look, it, it's what makes the, the field of counterviolent extremism uh, sort of contested because what are your longitudinal data points? You know, the committed terrorist dies. Uh, the, the, you know, the people you bring back never really cross that divide right so what are what are the factors that led to radicalization recruitment and or de-radicalization it's very difficult to have uh what are what are academics call it control points or something you know what right. i mean so it's a oh a control group a, yeah yeah it's a yeah there's no control group here right so the, so i i am a pragmatist in that sense what what can be seen to have uh an impact in a social sense right. on an individual right and what doesn't and you discard what doesn't, and you keep using what does, you know, and, and it's not absolute and it's not going to work in every situation, but I, I, I sort of 
but 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 you know that's someone who's been deep involved in this for a long time. Right. I appreciate I appreciate that is a contested. So, some people don't believe in counterviolent extremism at all. You know, it's as a, as a field of yeah. Uh, well, practice, it it, it also know. doesn't help that we have like think tanks here in America who bring in these de-radicalized terrorists who are like not de-radicalized at all, um, mm-hmm. and kind of like put them out as these like show ponies. Like, oh look, this guy came back from the came back from the abyss. Back from oblivion, it's like uh, uh-huh. well, and you give them a platform. L- listen, that's a that's a, a, a an interesting observation, though. Too is that are people ever truly off that path? And uh, I, I, I'll like, say I don't think it happens over the course of six months or a year. I think it takes no, a little bit longer no, than that. No. <laughs> you, you go through the prison program, right? You put your hand up and say, "Yay!" Right, right, the right. Flag. I, I, it's not going to happen. I think somebody could get off that path, like in a moment, if 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 they became aware, if they could lose the the blinders that that they right. had been wearing. If you can open up their hearts, if you can open them up to right. see. Right. What what you're doing is very unhealthy. Like if you believe in this cause, there are ways uh, beyond violence to if you you know if you believe that the caliphate is you know is destined to happen, right? Then but, you don't do that I by mean, my, my, killing people. You do that by proselytizing. Mm, I, I, but so there's there's emotional levers you can use there. I'll give you an example. The the young guy Akbar we mentioned who with the film Jihad Selfie. Um, you know, one of the levers we used with him was. The, the fact that he had never asked his mother permission to, to join ISIS or something. And there were, there were, there were some details there about uh, what, it, what that was meant theologically, but it was also an emotional ploy to say to him, you're a son, your mother cares about you. Right. You know? and, and that really had nothing to do with his commitment to violence or the caliphate. It was a, it was a much more raw emotional lever but that was a lever that you could use right, right. And, and and that won't work for everyone i suppose but um, yeah no but, but I, th- I think that's picking up on the point you, you're making there. no but but you're right in the sense that you know i i think that any group that that recruits people to do things that that, that they would never even think of doing on their own you know it's taking advantage of that that human the existential angst that all humans have you know buddha called it dukkha right that this mm-hmm. this sense of missing something and wanting to belong to something yep. and when you give them a purpose then uh, you know uh especially a heavenly purpose mm-hmm. you know a purpose for which they'll be rewarded for eternity for um it it it, it can be very appealing to people who feel lost no, ma- no matter what, no matter what the the cause is, I mean, it can be. You know what I mean? It can be a benevolent mm-hmm. oh, absolutely. cause. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And look, one of the harder things to explain um, is, uh, I mean, the, put it this way: the, the original people recruited to go to Afghanistan with Jemaah Islamiyah, as I said earlier, were carefully selected over a long period of time, clandestinely, and sort of groomed for it. And by the time they were sort of hit up to do it, they sort of uh, we're, we're, we're very much committed to the cause. Um, um, the the modern version of that, you're online. How does one jump to that next step so fast? I, I personally don't have a rational explanation for that. Um, in part, it's the power of social media. In part, it's the uh, displacement of 
of social, real social networks with right. online social networks. Right. Uh, in part, like what you alluded to, mate, it's this idea that you're lost and you're looking for something and there's appeal in it for some reason. Look, there, there are some very real feelings in the Muslim world that we don't quite get. For example, the, uh, how emotive Palestine is uh, and the play on that. Um, that can be that can be used, uh, but in most cases, in most cases, in my experience, there was a social aspect to, to it. People wanted to be part of the group. It was very masculine. Uh, involves weapons and getting out in the jungle, and you know, right? Same reason we want to join the recon platoon in the battalion. You know, it's just right. the same. It's right. a, it's a it's a similar mindset, right? No, I know that um, I, even, you know, because I spent a little bit of time in Gitmo uh, in the first part of, you know, Afghanistan. And, uh-huh. you know, a lot of the guys, there were some hardcore, there were some true believers there. But a lot of those guys were just guys who were poor, you know, not that bright, not educated at all. were never going to be able to afford the dowry to a wife or whatever for a wife. And, you know, at, at their mosque, you know, somebody would come say, if you know, if you come to Afghanistan, we'll give you a wife. And... Um, and you know, and, and you'll have work and that's all these guys wanted. So then yeah. they go, they get their yeah. passports taken and then, then maybe some of them slowly become believers. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, t- just to, to bring this a, a, a little bit of a humorous aside, uh, and I'm sure this guy wouldn't mind me telling this story. Uh, one of the people I've worked with, um, and remained good friends with is a guy called Nazir Abbas. He's Malaysian, actually, but um, he was um, the commander of Gemma Islamiyah's what they call Mantiki, which is like a regional command, Mantiki 3, so Philippines. And um, anyway, he, he, he will tell the story of his recruitment to Gemma Islamiyah in the late 80s. And he, he later was a, an instructor at their um, training camp in Afghanistan for many years. Uh, but he tells the story that him and a small number of others were first flown or f- first went into Afghanistan, I want to guess maybe, I don't know, 87 maybe. Um, they, uh, they, I'm, I'm sure they flew from Malaysia to Pakistan, something like that, uh, to like Karachi or something. And <laughs> they flew on like Aeroflot, the Russian airline. And he says he and his mates get on this Russian <laughs> commercial flight and they were just giggling to themselves going, we're on a Russian commercial flight. We're about to go to Afghanistan to fight Russia. To fight Russia. <laughs> and that was their, that was their, that, they, they, yeah, they, that they. is funny. Uh, but they, they weren't nervous uh, at all, huh? Not in, not in the sense of being um, caught. No. Yeah. I don't believe so. Malcolm, can you talk to us then about uh, kind of the next phase of your life was going to work for the United States government? In a de facto sense. Yes. Yeah. Um, so um, I'd finished in Indonesia. I was back in Australia. You know, classic. You've had a, 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 a operationally focused, intense uh, posting experience and you're back home and you're like, what am I going to do next? And um, let's just say an opportunity came along, uh, but it wasn't quite by accident. So I, I, one of the sort of ways of working I had as a diplomat was... Um, to never say no to a meeting request, right? Part of the role of a diplomat is to help other nations, other people understand what Australia thinks. And in this case, it was about my understanding of 
terrorism, right? We could have, we were busy, man. We could have very easily said no to every meeting. You know, I'm talking, let's say the Finnish embassy wants to know about what's happening. They're not tracking it. There's like two people in the Finnish embassy. They just want to meet someone and talk for an hour and get a, get a solid answer. So I, I had a rule that I'd never say no to a meeting to do that because I thought it was important that whoever it was uh, had the, the opportunity to listen to Australia's point of view, our government. And I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a mouthpiece for the government at that point in time. And I got a call from a friend of mine at the British Embassy and um, who did a lot of work there but not, not quite the scale that Australia did. And he's like, look, I've got a, a person in town, a British guy, can you come and meet him for coffee? He's doing some research. I think it might have been government-funded research by the UK government, but he needs a hand. He, he doesn't have any leads here. Can you just meet him and give him your insights? I said, sure. Yeah, no problem. So we, 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 we meet up. I get his number. We meet up for a restaurant somewhere in Jakarta, and I struck up a conversation with this guy for a couple of hours and, and gave him all my leads too. I said, Go, okay, what do you want to do? You want to meet? Terrorist prisoners, okay, speak to this person. Um, you need an insight, Indonesian police, okay, speak to this person. And I, I laid it all out. This is not, you know, secret networks or nothing. This is just, you just need to get pointed in the right direction. Right. So I did this for this guy. His name's Alistair Harris. Uh, again, another instrumental fellow in my life and um, friend to this day, if he's listening. Uh, and he, he was running a company, as it turns out, a private company called... Uh, there was a few parts to it, but if you look it up today, it's called ARK, A-R-K, ARK International. And he, like me, uh, was a former British diplomat. He'd spent time in the Balkans as well and ended up in Syria and Iraq. And he'd sort of built a small company on post-conflict stabilization programs. And he somehow he'd come across this um, opportunity to take some U.S. government uh, funding from a, from a, from a U.S. government um, agency and do some work in Southeast Asia. And he rang me up. He goes, I, could you do it? Would you want to do it with me? And I said, and I was just one of those points in your life where I've worked for the federal government for a long time. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> so I said, yes. And, uh, uh, and he, he, he actually flew to Australia to meet up with me. God bless him. Like, uh, as you do old school business, right? You go and network someone when you want to recruit them. And um, we sat down and we concocted this, this, this bid, I suppose you might call it, a proposal. Uh, it included my friend, Norhuda, who I've been speaking about before. Uh, and we threw it in and we got it. And so from that moment, I was a, uh, I think, private contractors probably a crude way to put it but i was a i was a um two-step removed uh program manager for a very very quiet operation in southeast asia for the u.s government where we weren't trying to be clandestine but we were definitely not trying to telegraph anyone's involvement if i can put it that way um and I ran that for the next two years. It was awesome. Like it was, uh, had some elements in uh, Southern Philippines, uh, but mostly in Indonesia. And it was a chance to sort of uh, imagine that you'd had your trade, the structured component of it, right? You trained in, in ODAs or whatever. And then you got out and someone said, right, we want you to do pretty much exactly the same thing. 
Um, but you don't need to be writing briefings. You don't need to be writing cables. You just need to get out there and do good. <laughs> so that's what we did. And um, with Al's leadership um, and connections to the US, um, we, 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 we got about it over the next couple of years. And, and this um, was uh, counter-violent extremist programs? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, counter-violent extremist, which is different to sort of um, other programming looking at um, religious tolerance, for example. Um, you know, this, this was sharp end stuff. Uh, how do we target people for recruitment and, and disrupt that through online engagement? And how do we jump that to real-world offline engagement in the, in the real sense? Right. Um, in, a, in a very personal way. So we, we trained and recruited uh, mentors who were a mix of activists and former terrorists um, we put them back into the field. They built their own sub-networks. They got out there and um, brought people back from the edge using our methodology. That sounds, pr that, time, that sounds pretty aggressive for like a preemptive pre program, right? I mean, we don't, we don't usually think that far ahead. The, that's true, and that's why it was sort of fun. Um, it was a very unorthodox way to do it. We were given a lot of responsibility and leeway. Uh, it was sanctioned. Like, you know, people sure. knew what we were doing. Sure. Um, um, but it was effective. And the only real reason it dried up was two reasons, COVID and, uh, and um, the increasing focus on um, peer competitors, if right. I can put it yeah, that way. Peer, yeah, the near peers in Southeast Asia. Yeah. And look, the US government's huge. There's always resources and people looking at terrorism. There's, it's, it wasn't. Like, I, I was just one tiny bit of it, right? Sure. Um, but, yeah, Al, Al Harris and myself and Nahuda sort of did this work um, uh, at, you know, using your taxpayer money, I suppose. Um, and um, we, we took it very seriously and um, we had some really good programs. You, Malcolm, you mentioned something really interesting, sort of the disruption, because as somebody who has worked this topic from, from multiple angles, um, and, and as, as in a, as a compassionate human being, like ideally you never have to get to the de-radicalization, right? You mm -hmm. can stop it somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. How do you, what is your opinion on how government should deal with you know, like places like Finsbury Mosque or, or, or places where known radicalism and, and radicalization is is known to happen, but yeah. when we live in a free society, yeah, we have to respect the rights of people. Sure, I mean, I think what you're the crux of that question is what what can and should state intervention look like into what are inherently private social processes? Yeah, that's um, great. That's, that's I, better I than I could have ever said it. So thank you. I, I think that there is a case for the state to have functions there because of the threat. And you know, um, there will be covert mechanisms. There will be there will be overt mechanisms, and there'll be stuff that's grey in between. And I suppose my take on this, and I'm a, I've been a what you call a very silent player in this stuff. Like you don't see me often in the front seat of this work. Um, that's because my methodology. Uh, to answer your question, is to go with and through local partners and local civil society. You know, I, I think that 
do 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 commun does community policing have a function in this for example yes it does and a, a uniformed police officer has a role in terms of community protection and relationships uh do law enforcement intelligence agencies from a national perspective and international perspective have a function as well yes they do but who do we actually get to use that's going to take some action and take ownership and responsibility for this stuff well it comes from within those in groups within those communities and so the trick is um how do you identify train uh, develop capacity i suppose of of these people and organizations and it's a careful balance because you need to you need they need to be credible to start mm -hmm. with that they're going to have attraction to the the the, the radicalized community whether that be a right-wing group or a an islamist group is most of my experience um they need, to, they need to be credible. They need to fully believe in your aims and objectives as well and and see the benefit for their community at the same time. And that's a, that's a very balanced act. And I would argue that that grey zone work is different to either uniformed law enforcement or covert intelligence. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's sort of, it's a hybrid of, of, of that, but, um, it can play a place. It can also have a lot of blowback, you know, if you don't do it well. Right. Um, and um, for example, if you try and mask the fact that you are a tool of the government, you risk that. You, you're essentially, if you do that, you're trying to run a COVID operation, right? Right. And, and if that's not what you're doing, not what you're trained to do and authorized to do, then it's going to come unstuck. So it's this sort of, relationship-based work where you develop trust that people know exactly who you are and what you're doing and why you you equip them with the tools uh and and um methodology and funding and motivation to to counteract that malcolm and you oh go ahead i'm sorry no no and then you get after it is all i was going to say you, yeah you try it basically it's a challenging, I think it's a challenging situation in our modern era, especially, you know, in Western countries where personal liberty is supposed to be very important to us. Um, and, you know, separation of church and state and respecting people's religions and things like that. Um, it, it gets very com uh, complicated. The line you got to draw as, a, as an actor is violence. So where, where, is, where are people espousing violence? or planning for violence, I believe in my heart that's the crossover for some sort of action. Right. And um, and arguably, if it's a threat to the state, then the state has a responsibility and obligation to its citizens to to look at that very closely. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to ask you to stay um, for the bonus segment, Malcolm. Um, and for those of you out there who don't know or aren't subscribed already, uh, we have a Patreon uh, that you find down in the description and you can get access to two bonus episodes a month and also uh, bonus segments with many of our guests. You're, you're like our peeps when you're on our Patreon. Our, 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 our Patreon Check it out. pays the rent, pays the lights, and keeps us in the Freud. And, you know, make sure that you subscribe to the channel. If you haven't already, hit the bell icon, uh, like and share the video. Um, take to the streets. Let people know about the team house. Uh so, Malcolm, before we uh, wrap up here, could you tell us where you're at today in the kind of work that you're doing today? Um, I, I think you mentioned sure. that it, it's uh, energy-related. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, my current job is um, 
look, if, I think you described me on your um, lead-in as a problem solver, international problem solver. Right. And, you know, I, saw, I hadn't thought used that before as a, as a description of myself, but it's a really, uh, it's a really good one. And the, the problem I'm trying to solve right this moment is climate change. And um, I work for a company, an Australian company, but it's, a, it's now a global green energy company called Fortescue Future Industries. And, you know, um, we believe that the planet is cooking. You know, and um, we we are a business that is trying to become a global green energy company, and we're committed to producing, you know, zero carbon uh, hydrogen from one hundred percent renewable energy sources. And um, I suppose we believe that, from a commercial perspective, that um, hydrogen is a zero carbon fuel that's going to revolutionise the way we fuel our planet. And that's not going to happen by accident. Uh, we need to identify and secure renewable sources of energy uh, at, at industrial scale. We need to decarbonize whole economies and industries. And, um, you know, Fortescue Future Industries, who I work for, uh, has the resources, the best brains and the determination to make an impact. And so it's been an interesting transition for me from trying to have an impact uh, uh, in the world of conflict, I suppose you could put it, from negotiating with Taliban and reforming terrorists or tracking down war criminals um, to wanting to address one of the, or arguably the human challenge of our of our age. And um, it's been a privilege to do so. And, and um, I've approached that job with the same you know, passion and, and thought and... Um, leadership and people-based sort of viewpoint that I have every other position I've, I've done. Might look and seem a bit different for someone from national security background to be doing this in a commercial space. Um, but um, on reflection, uh, having been at it for a while now, it's, um, it's, it's been a, uh, it's has felt a very natural transition and I've enjoyed it every single moment. Well, Malcolm, this has been a fair dinkum as they say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you used that right. You don't think, I don't think that? No, no, no. That is a good use of the It's been a fair dinkum discussion. It's a fair, fair dinkum discussion. Uh, where can people find you if they want to find your consultancy services or whatever uh, they might be interested in having an international problem solver uh, tackle? <laughs> where, where, where can they find you at? The best place is LinkedIn, I think. Okay. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of LinkedIn. Um, it's a very transparent way of doing business um people can see your entire history and background you can make yourself available to others or not um and um i post on there from time to time and 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 follow mostly now in green industry uh green renewable energy industry for fortescue but um that's the best place to find me yes okay folks next friday we are going to have a Chilean special operations soldier on the show. It's going to be spicy. It's going to it's going to be interesting, and we don't often get to hear it because it's Chilean. Ha ha! Yeah, that's 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 a wonderful thing. I kill. <laughs> I feel like I'm a broken man. I'm right hilarious. Now. I'm just well, look, it's a Southern Hemisphere connection to me, right? It's just across the Pacific Ocean. Oh, right, right. Yeah, you guys don't spice your foods, though. What's up with that? Uh, I, I honestly oh, we're, don't know. We're multicultural in Australia, man. I, I, we take it all. I, I honestly we, don't know that Chileans do either, but but Chile, anyway, <laughs> it's dumb. All right, Chile. I'll stop, 
Oh, but really, I, I know I'm, I'm glad to have um, one of our partnered countries uh, represented on the show. We don't do it often enough. Um, so he'll be here telling us about, you know, his country's special operations forces and um, actually some operations that he was involved in. So thank you guys for joining us tonight. Thank you so much, Malcolm, for sharing your experiences with us here yeah, tonight. Yeah, thank you, Malcolm. We really appreciate it. And thank you, everybody. Please uh, like and my subscribe. Pleasure. Yeah, please like and subscribe. And thanks, Malcolm. Tell, tell your mom, tell your pets, tell your wife. And, and look, if you're going to join a radical organization, join our Patreon. <laughs> well, I've got to have the FBI call me by, by Monday. Uh, I know it. It's bad enough while like, Facebook is banning me all the time. Well, you should stop posting nude pics. I should start stop posting the lewds. Yeah. The lewds. They shut down okay, his only yeah. fan because they were too lewd. <laughs> So, all right. Nah, thanks, fellas, look, just, uh, just to say thanks. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking about it and my stories. And um, you have a fantastic program. There's been some incredible guests on the show. And um, I'm actually um, pretty humbled to be invited. So um, thank you very much. Well, all right. So, yeah, thank you, man. We'll talk to you for the bonus segment. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.